Thanks for this opportunity to come together. We ask you to guide and lead as we study the book of Second Peter and that your spirit would show us what you would want us to see from all of this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in the book of Second Peter, and as we do at the start of any book, we kind of give the background to the book and all of that. Uh, Second Peter is one of the eight general epistles, or the general epistle is, it's the letters not written by Paul. So in the New Testament, we have 29 books, we have the four gospels, one history book, one book of prophecy, eight general epistles, and the rest of them were all written by Paul. Uh, one of the general epistles we're not sure about because we're not quite sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. And when we get to Hebrews, we'll talk about its authorship. And it's a fair chance in, that it was written by Paul, but there's a number of other people they think might have written that book. Peter did write, Peter did write this book. Uh, now, there are people who wonder if Peter wrote this, but the one thing that I'm going to say is the very first book says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. It says that it is that Simon Peter wrote it, and because I believe the Bible says what it means, it means what it says, I'm going to say Simon Peter wrote the book, all right? Because if it's not true that Simon Peter wrote the book, then I have to throw the Bible away because I can't believe anything in there, all right? There's so, no way that he made a mistake. Huh? There's no way they could have made a mistake. It's been Simon Peter since the time that it's been, been yeah. talked about. And there are a lot of people says, well, this Greek in this is too advanced for a fisherman like Simon Peter to have written. But uh, remember, they, they also many times would use a scribe to write things out, a secretary. Many businessmen sign their name to a letter. It's their letter, their, word, their initial words, and the secretary cleans, cleans it up and makes it proper. So these are Simon Peter's word, whether, whether he actually physically wrote all the words in it may or may not have happened. Most of the Pauline epistles, even though Paul was perfectly capable of writing things out, were dictated to secretaries. And at the very end, he would usually say, this is my letter dictated to, to so-and-so. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to rule out that some scribe or secretary did the actual writing for Peter, but it's his, his words. <laughs> All right, because he's the one that has it signed, and he'll, he'd have read it over, approved it, and initialed it as his writing. But it says it's from Simon Peter. I'm going to say Simon Peter is the author of this letter. All right, contrary, contrary to all the skepticism that's out there, the early first father, uh, century fathers all attributed it to Simon Peter. They, a couple, of, about three of them admitted that some people didn't believe that it was Simon Peter, again, they go back to the level of the Greek in it. And you want to remember that what was this testimony that we read in Acts, you know, that they perceived that they were unlearned men, you know, and they were always surprised. Well, one thing you want to remember, most of these, most of the disciples were businessmen. They weren't unintelligent, uneducated people. They may not have been educated in the religious circles, but they knew how to write. They knew how to account, run accounts. They knew, they knew how to do business. They weren't stupid people by any stretch of the imagination. They just weren't the educated theologians that would look at them and say, how can they know these things? They, they, didn't, go to, they didn't go to seminary. Even inspired? Well, a lot of it is inspired. I mean, they're being able to write. Probably. They were inspired. God, God spoke to them and, and made it clear as well. But each one of them wrote within their own style. 
and that's and that's the one thing that's hard for us to understand. God spoke to different people, their knowledge, their understanding of things come through, right? And usually it's beyond. There's times when I teach and I know that what I'm teaching is beyond what I know and what, what I'm able to speak. And I know that it's God speaking through me, but it's still me. It's still me. It's still limited by my vocabulary, my, my understanding of things. In each of these letters, even though they're inspired, yes, they're, there's places where they go way beyond what, what they know, you know, and write things that are just far above them. But it's still limited. <laughs> You understand what I'm saying? It's not, it's limited by man, but it is inspired so that it goes beyond. And so I'm not, it says Simon Peter, I'm going to believe it's Simon Peter. This is Second Peter. Uh, Second Peter. Uh, the time of the writing is somewhere between 64 and 70 AD. We know that Simon Peter died around 69, 70 AD. Inside the, this, this letter, he says, I'm soon to die. All right, and we know that Nero executed Simon Peter. We know that Nero started his reign in 66 6 AD. So he knew his death sentence was on him, just as Paul, as he's writing his prison epistles, knew his death sentence was on him. It was just a matter of time. 66 AD. 66 AD. That was when Nero started writing. And one of the things we know about the New Testament, it was all written before 70 AD. 70 AD was the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the church to all, to all places of the, of the Roman Empire. And the reason we know, the reason that is said there is these were all Jewish men. If, the, if the Jerusalem had fallen, somebody, one of them would have said something about writing after Jerusalem had fallen. That was a big deal to the Jew. Uh, it would have been something like, since Jerusalem fell, we know that the return of Jesus is soon or something of that, <laughs> of that nature you know, would have been inscribed somewhere in their letter because that would have been a big deal. That would have been like to us as Americans if Washington, D.C. was to be taken captive and our government totally crashed, it would be a big deal to us. We would, you know, at least the first generation would be thinking about that, talking about that. I remember when we had a capital. I remember when it was in Washington, D.C. and, you know, hadn't had to been moved someplace else. Um, in the 1800s when when uh, D.C. was captured and they had to move the capital to Philadelphia, that was a big deal to the people in that day. D.C. has fallen. You know, our government now is, has to reside in Philadelphia again. So it, was a, it would be a big deal, and that's why we know these things, the books were written by 70 A.D. And we already had a, all put together by the early church fathers. The first century church fathers all quoted these books, and that's one of the reasons we know what books are original uh, because people will talk oftentimes, well, what about all those lost epistles? What about all those epistles they just threw away? Well, all the lost epistles and everything were never man mentioned by any of the early church fathers. All right? None of them. We could put the whole scriptures together by the quotes of the early church fathers because they'd go, according to Simon Peter, and they would quote something. According to Paul, they would quote, according to Isaiah, and they'd quote something. They didn't have chapter and verse, but if you put all their writings together, we have most of what is considered the uh, canon of scripture. Anything they didn't mention, they're going, wasn't, wasn't one of their books. We know that most of the lost quote unquote books were written around three or 400 AD. And that's not ever mentioned by the people who want to say, well, these were just thrown out by the Council of Trent. They, didn't, they never considered these books. Well, of course they didn't consider them. They were new books by the time that they were being considered even though they claim to be written by Thomas and Judas and all these other people, 
they, and that's why they look at this one and say, you know, it says Simon Peter, but did Simon Peter really write it? Well, if he didn't write it, it doesn't belong in scripture, divinely approved scripture, and means that the book should be, the whole thing should be thrown out because if it's not true, if every word is not true, then we have nothing to stand on. All right? Long explanation about the <laughs> authorship and a little bit of history. A little bit of history into how the word of God was put together. It wasn't arbitrary. They just didn't say, okay, well, we don't think this book fits. This book seems to fit. This book doesn't fit. When they sat down at the Council of Trent to figure out what books belonged in the, in the Old Testament, first off, they go to the Old Testament. We're taking what the Jews believe. 39 books that they, they went with, well, actually, for the Jews, it was less because we divide Kings and Chronicles and Samuel into separate books. They all, they all looked at it as one big, long book. And there were several other books that they considered, not one and two like we do. So they had all the books of what we consider the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, they only took the ones that were quoted by the first century leaders. And the first century leaders had been trained directly by the apostles. So they knew the writing. They knew the understanding of those, of those men. So they were able to say, yes, I know. I know he, they might have even been present when he wrote that book. So they all would quote them, and that's why when we get to the 400 years later, they go, these are the books that are canon, or are the, are the New Testament. These we know are the ones that were written. And we know that not every letter that Paul wrote, not every letter that Peter wrote, not every letter that John wrote are considered scripture. Right? And we know in, when we looked at uh, Corinthians, we know that Paul wrote at least three, if not four letters to the Corinthians because he refers to other letters. When he's, when he's speaking to them. But only two of them made it as scripture. And it, oftentimes you would say, you know, I want you to pass this letter around. And you know, in one of the books he says, pass this letter around and you read the letter that went to the Laodiceans. We have no book that, from, Peter, from Paul that was written to the Laodiceans. So whatever that book contained was not considered scripture. It was probably good advice, good, good writing and good, good advice, but it wasn't considered scripture by people. It didn't, it didn't pick up that status of this was inspired by God. And I know there's times when I, when I speak that I'm speaking and God is speaking through me and I know it very clearly. And there's times when I'm just teaching and speaking and I know the difference between the two. And I'm not saying I'm speaking scripture, but I'm just saying I know the difference when God is really speaking through me and when I'm just taking the gift of the teaching he's given me and teaching. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with either one of them. It's better when, it's in, you know, better when I know it's inspired, because I know that's God speaking. But it's not worthless when I'm teaching because I study and I, know, and I know his word. But I know the difference. And you all probably know the difference, too, when you're listening to me. So we're going to look at this. The outline of this book, or the theme of this book, is warning against false doctrines and the need for the word of God to be taught and the certainty of the promises of God to be fulfilled. For only three chapters, it is a powerful book with great teaching in it. But Peter is going to be talking to them and saying, beware the false teachers. And this was a theme that Paul, especially in his, in his latter days as he's getting ready to die, was a big theme for all the disciples. Jesus hasn't come in our, day, in our lifetime, and we've already seen a whole bunch of false teachers popping up all over the place. Be careful. Use your discernment. Beware, there's false teachers everywhere. And remember, Paul had to do this all the time. He would come into a town, he'd preach the gospel, people would respond, and even sometimes before he left, but definitely after he left, 
the Judaizers would come in and they'd base their message, message was, Paul's message is a really good message. It's a great message. Listen to him, but he didn't give you the whole message. And this was happening and Peter is seeing this and this is why we believe it's a late, late 60s uh, letter because he's saying, okay, I'm getting ready to die, people. I'm, I was a witness of what went on. I want you to understand geez, that these are right, these are true. And that false teachers are coming in and trying to lead you astray. Why does that happen? Because Satan is the father of lies. He wants people to believe strange things. And we get it all the time. Talk to somebody and ask them, well, do you think you're going to, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven. Well, why are you going to go? Well, I'm, I'm basically a good person. I try hard. You know, not biblical, sorry. That's, that is a lie from Satan. And the sad thing is there's a lot of churches that teach that. You know, just do a lot of good and you'll get to heaven. Be good. Do more good than bad and you'll get to heaven. Oh, this Jesus thing, that's not really important. You know? No, it is so important. Without Jesus, we cannot make it into heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And it's all a gift of grace. And this is where Peter is as he's writing, having this letter written, you know, or writing it himself. He's saying, beware of these false teachers. Be careful of what you're learning. And it is so true that we need to be careful of what we're learning. And the sad thing is, even with good teachers, you can be taught wrong things. And I've seen and heard that many times. You know, there's teachers I like sometimes I'm listening to and I'm going, where in the world did you come up with that idea? You know, and I'm sure I've probably taught things incorrectly over the years. Because there's times I get around and I'm doing study and I'm going, oh, wow, that's not what I thought in the long run. But I'm going, God, you said it. And I look at it and find out something's true that I may have even taught and believed in the past. So we're all able to learn. We're all able to grow. But just make sure that wherever you're growing, you're basing it on scripture. And I've said this so many times ago, I don't expect everybody in this church to agree with me on every point. I'd be scared if everybody agreed with me on every single point. Because that would mean that I have a bunch of sheep just following me and they only have whatever knowledge I have and that's not a, that's not a good thing. But if you disagree, know why you disagree. Know why you believe scripturally, because I'll defend whatever I believe very adamantly and very strongly from the scriptures. I'll tell you what I believe and why. Doesn't mean I'm always right, but I know what I believe and, and why I believe it. And if you know what you believe and you disagree, just make sure you know how to defend it from scripture. Don't be going, well, I think this is the truth. Well, nobody cares what you think. Nobody cares what I think, really. I have a lot of knowledge, I have a lot of understanding, but if it's something I just believe, I'm gonna tell you this is what I think. And it's worth nothing, other than the fact that I've studied for 48 years and, and based most of what I think on my understanding of the scriptures. But we wanna be careful, know why you believe what you believe. And I'll lay out the reasons why I believe it, but there are times when I say this is what I believe because of what the scripture says. And sometimes it's very clear. And all I say is what you believe, know how to defend it. That is what Peter says, be ready to give a defense for what you believe. The last thing I want anybody in our church to be, well, this is just what I think. Well, that's wonderful. We got lots of people thinking they're going to heaven and when they're headed straight to hell because they're not basing it on Jesus Christ, but they think that what they have is true. And that's a big problem in our date world today. We have people growing up that have been told for years that whatever you think is good. In school, they're being told that if you spell elephant E-L-F-A-N-T, that you're okay. 
because they're not going to correct them because, well, it sounds that way, so we'll just let them spell it whatever way they want. So they end up going to work looking stupid because they don't know how to spell, thinking they're smart because everybody's told them how smart they are and how original they are, and they come to work and somebody now corrects them, especially if they go to work in a writing industry where you're supposed to write correctly. <laughs> and we're seeing all of this thing. We have an entire, an entire generation of entitled people. You, know, you go to sports and everybody gets the trophy for participating. You know, and now they won't even give out a most valuable player because you're not going to single out somebody to be better than all the rest because everybody is just as good as everybody else. And that's what our kids are being told until they hit the workplace and all of a sudden they're being told, you're not good. And they go, what do you mean I'm not good? And it heartbreaking to them, you know, soul destroying to them and angering to them and it's going to get worse because of where we're at. And this is why we need to be able to speak the truth in love know what we believe and why we believe it. And this is really what Peter is getting ready to say. The way this book outlines is the first two verses are just the salutation, who's speaking and who, who it's addressed to, and his greetings. The rest of the chapter one is all about the spiritual life. It's a powerful chapter. And we probably won't get to the end of the 21 verses today. Very powerful chapter. Chapter two is all about false and corrupt teachers and and their character and their doctrine and what to look for. And then the last chapter is all about what will happen to those false teachers, the coming of Jesus Christ and the sure promises of God will be fulfilled. So he ends up on a very high note on, on this uh, book. So we're going to start at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained the precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according with as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby we are given whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. Besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtual knowledge and not knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity. For in these things, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. All right, we're going to just stop there and look at this. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. When we read the word servant, we, we need to really understand that when it is written out, it means a voluntary servant by choice, not compulsion. Right? Uh, in the Old Testament, when you were, it would be a bond slave, somebody who's agreed to be a servant. And what would end up happening is, if you ended up in trouble in, in, the, in uh, Old Israel, you ended up in financial trouble or whatever, and you, somebody bought your contract or bought your services for seven years, at the end of the seven years, if you really loved your, your master and it was a good master, you kind of, you know, you knew you were going to mess up when you came back out again. 
You could say, I don't want to be released. I want to be your servant for, for, the, for, for, for the rest of my time. I voluntarily choose to be your servant. And then they would put an earring in your ear, you know, a particular earring in your ear to show that you were a bond slave, a slave that had chosen the position of servant. This is that equivalent here. Uh, Peter is saying, I have chosen to follow Jesus as his servant. He is my master, my Lord, which means he was admitting that he is to do whatever Jesus says. Part of our problem in today's world is we don't look at ourselves as servants of Jesus, especially here in America. You know, we really don't like the idea of being servants or having a king or lord over us. We, we take pride in, we get to vote in our president, we get to vote in our, our governor, we get to vote in all of our representatives, and if we don't like them, I'm going to get rid of them. That's not the attitude here. It's not the attitude we should have as Christians toward God. He is our Lord and Master. If he says jump, we're to say, how high do you want us to jump? He says, go talk to that person. How long do you want me to talk to them about? You know, talk to them about. You know, and other, but what we usually do, well, you know, God, I'm just not in the mood to go to church. I'm not in the mood to go talk to that person. I'm not in the mood to serve you today. It's just a bad day. I just want to sleep today. If you had a servant that said that to their master, <laughs> that servant would be beat or at least very severely, severely punished. We are servants to God. If we choose to follow him and make him our Lord and Savior, and that's what it means to become a Christian, all right? We go to him, we confess we're sinners, and we say, yes, I accept your gift. I trust you to be in control of my life. There are many people who don't have Jesus in their trust, in their servanthood. And this is something that is very important. It doesn't mean I'm ever going to get it right. <laughs> I'm not going to serve him completely. But my option is not to turn around and tell God, well, God, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do it my way. Can I be saved without that? Well, it's just a matter of putting my trust in him. But what is trust? Putting all my faith, all my, all my trust in him. I've talked about the idea of repelling. When you put your weight on that, whole, on that little rope going down the down the mountainside, you're putting all your trust. If that rope isn't strong, you have no other options. And that's what we do when we put it in Jesus. Jesus, if you are not who you say you are, I have no plan B. And that's what we need to do. I'm not going, well, you know, uh, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus today, but you know, I got a little bit over here. I'm believing in Buddha, and over here, I'm believing a little bit in Hindu. I'm believing over here in Krishna. I'm believing over here, you know, in uh, Allah. No. My trust has to be in Jesus with no plan B. So you think that trust is actually a component of faith? I do. We're going to get into that definition of faith being tr you full confidence. Faith to always separate, have faith and trust. Yeah. But faith by its definition is a conviction that something is true, which is a trust. Most people talk about faith in very nebulous terms. Well, I just have faith that something... You know, and what they mean by that is, well, this is what I think may happen. I don't have any proof or, or evidence for it. That is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is I have an absolute conviction in it. Maybe not 100% proved. It's not proven 100%. Uh, we all have faith. When we sit down in these chairs in this room, we have faith that the chair is going to hold us up. Why? Always has in the past. <laughs> the chairs that look like these that I've sat in look like I think they would hold up. Hold up. 
and I've shared with you those uh, things they use for those little white chairs that have got little tiny rods that look like they can't hold up anything and they can't, uh, that they use for uh, parties and everything. I have no faith that those chairs are going to hold somebody my weight up. I sit down on a, I've broken enough of those at 300 pounds and they've gone flat on the ground and it, and it hurt. So when I see those chairs, even though I've lost a lot of weight now, I still do not trust or have faith that that chair works. They probably work just fine at my weight now, but my, the evidence of my life is don't sit in those chairs. They, they don't work. On these chairs, most of the time they work. I've had one or two that were bent or broken, and, and they've, but they've never collapsed all the way. They've just kind of, usually it's right there where the leg comes up against the back and it, it bends or goes off. And, you can see why it was broken, and I look for those defects. But for faith, as far as God is concerned, it's a conviction. It's a conviction that what he says is true. And then, as I walk in that truth, walk in that faith, it becomes true, and he proves it to me. And once he proves it to me, it's no longer faith, because it's proven now. I've walked with God long enough and watched him be true and faithful with what he said, most of what he says now is not an idea of faith to me anymore. God, even when it's something new, well, God, you've been true in the past. I have absolute confidence that this one's true. Now, when I first started as Christianity and studying, it wasn't that way. A lot of it was just plain faith. All right, God, you said it. I'm going to believe it because you said it. But as I walk with him and I watch how he delivers and I watch how, he, how he's answered and how he's fulfilled every one of his promises, Faith becomes less and less this nebulous idea of, I just have this hope and, and, and that, that what he says is true. It's becoming now grounded in truth. God, you have been faithful everywhere else. I know what you're saying is true. And that's where I'm at now. All right, God, well, you, you said what? <laughs> okay, God, I'm, I'm going to accept it. Does that make sense on it? It starts out with just this kind of nebulous faith. All right, God, you said have faith in you. But it grows deeper and deeper into an absolute understanding and truth. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So for, to increase my faith, I get to know his word more. And the more I get to know his word, the more I get to experience his word because he starts fulfilling his word. And I, have, I now have ground to stand under. I'm not just, you know, and we listen to people. They talk about, well, I, 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 I have faith. Well, what do you have faith in? Well, you know, I just kind of have faith. I believe that God is good. good. I, believe, I believe all people go to heaven. And what are you putting your faith in? Well, you know, I just think. I just feel. That's a terrible place to have your, feeling, your faith. But that is where we start. Even as Christians, you know, very few people come to Christ having a fully grounded faith that fully trust in him. When we first come to him, it's, well, God, I sure hope what you're saying is true, that I, I was destined for hell and you died for me and I accept you and I'm putting my trust in you. And we start there, which is, okay, I have nothing really to hold on to, but I'm going to believe. And then we walk with him. The more we walk with him, the deeper that faith gets and the more grounded that faith comes into. And I start having a conviction that faith becomes an absolute strong conviction that I can do it. And that is where it comes into. Starts out very nebulous. And as I walk with him, it gets very strong. Right now, I'm in a place where people aren't going to shake me on what, what the Word of God says. They're just not. I've studied it. I know it. I know that God has spoken the truth. I know that he's delivered me. I know that all things work together for good because for 48 years, I've watched things over and over 
work out together for good. And even if I don't understand it, I then now trust him. Okay, God, the other 80, 90% that I know worked out for good, I'm going to trust you that the other 10 or 20 will be good when I get to see it from heaven's side. Even though I may not understand it because I'm not you. And as somebody heard, I heard a pastor say today, God doesn't tell us why he does things because we wouldn't like the reason that he, that he did it in the first place. God, why did you put me through so much pain for the last week? Well, it's so that this person would see you persevere and, and be able to follow me, get excited and follow me more. Well, God, I don't think that's fair that you put me through pain so that they would. <laughs> but if I start following God and saying, oh, all right, God, that's what you want, thank you. But we're not going to like it when God says, I did this so that somebody else could grow. God, I, you know, God, why'd you burn my house down, take my cars away, take, take my job away, take away my health, and leave me like Job, sick on the, on the ground? Just so Satan would see my power and see your faithfulness in me so that I could then show him my reward afterward? Would we like the answer while we're living? No. Would we like it in heaven? Probably, because of all the rewards that come along with it. But on this world, would we like that answer? Absolutely not. You know, you did all this so you can make a point with, with Satan. You made, did all this to make a point with another Christian to grow and walk with you. You did all this so that others, the lost, might come to you. In this lifetime, we probably won't like that answer until we've grown to a place where, all right, God, I'm willing to go through whatever you're going to put me through so that somebody else can come to Christ. And that's what Paul says. He goes, I would be willing to go to hell, if God, if you would just bring all of Israel to you. Now, I haven't got that far yet. <laughs> All right. I haven't got that far yet, but I am understanding what he said. God, I'm willing to go through pain if it will help somebody else come to you. And there's times when I've gone through pain and suffering so that somebody else can be devote, you know, see the devotion and go forward with God. I mean, if God does stuff like that and you still fail, you don't hold up your end. Then you're given grace and you, God, will, God will embrace you and give you, turn that to good even. Because the promise is all things work together for good. Even when I mess up, even when I sin and tear apart my testimony before people and God, destroy God's testimony through in my realm of God will still work it out for good. They seem to do that very well. <laughs> We all do, but what we need to do is grow from that. No, you're not the only one. We all need to grow through that and say, okay, God, help me so I don't fail the next time. Somebody who comes to Christ and just wants to give up whatever sin they have, smoking, drinking, fornication, whatever it might be, and say, and keep falling, and keep falling. Hopefully, God gets more and more control of them each, each time, and eventually... They have enough faith to just say, God, I trust you more than I trust this sin. I trust you to give me the power to overcome this sin. Whatever that sin, and, and it could be any number of sins. We all have a sin that, we, that bothers us, whether it's something that people know or not, because it, it could just be something mental. I always think the wrong thing. You know, I see, I see this person and I lust. I see, I see somebody like that person and I lust and can just not get over it. And God says, you know, and nobody else knows that's your problem, but you know it. The thing that you've got to look at is whatever is dragging and knocking you down is whatever God is trying to teach you at that moment, and you need to ask for strength to get over it. And we just need to recognize, all right, God, <laughs> I can't get over this. I need you. 
And, I, and I've said this over and over again. If you're learning patience, you're going to find all kinds of people that try your patience until you finally say, God, I can't do it. I need you. If you're having to learn to love people, depending on where you're at, God's going to put people in that are hard for you to love. And believe me, I know what it's like to have that because God knows I don't like people. You know, I like them much better than I used to. I really am a loner. I like being alone. I have no problem. When I worked at home as, as a telecommuter, if I didn't go to church, I would have never gone out of the house and I would have been happy. I would have gone out to the, go buy groceries and come back home and I would have never left home because I was at home. That's the type of person I am. God has taught me to love people and care about people over the years. And now I still have tendencies toward a loner, but I now I'm working to love people and, and caring about people. And it's always a trial area for me. Oftentimes God will come in and say, all right, here's somebody that's going to be real easy for you to love. <laughs> and I'm being very facetious when I say that. They're going to be very hard. They're going to do everything I hate, everything I don't like. And it's like, okay, God, you put this person in my life. All right, you're going to have to help me love this person. Try to be kind to this person. And this is where you're going to be. Whatever God is teaching you, and every one of us has something in our life that we can look at and say, God, you're trying to teach me something right now. Help me. Help me learn this lesson because God does not move on to the next lesson until he, we learn the lesson he's working on. So I know people who for decades have had the same thing going on in their life and they're wondering why. You haven't learned your lesson yet. <laughs> you know, I fought with God for six years on a particular issue one time before I finally said, God, I give up. And it was just one lesson after another, after another, after another, and failing on every one of them for six years. And I gave up, gave it to God. He says, okay, let's move on now. You got this lesson. And he moved to the next level of the lesson. <laughs> but you know, he's going to think about this. So when you're going through a hard time and you say, God, what is it you're working on me on? And you, all you have to do is, what do I keep going through? What is it that keeps dragging me down, start giving it to God and asking for the strength to get through it. Then when you get through it, he'll give you another thing to learn, <laughs> learn to do. So all of our life is going to be this cycle of lessons to go through, this whole cycle of possible things to go through. And all of that comes down to our faith, getting back to where the question was, our faith. And he says, he's an apostle of Jesus through them that have obtained a like precious faith with us. This like precious faith literally means an equal faith as us. God gives all of us faith. And he gives us an equal amount of faith, which is all the faith that we need. We have to learn to use it. It would almost be like he goes, okay, you've got a million dollars in the bank, and I don't know there's a million dollars in the bank. Is that helping me at all? You know, I'm living as a pauper. I'm, I've got the uh, broken down car, living in the, in the middle of a, the worst neighborhood, and barely able to feed myself, but there's a million dollars in the bank that I don't know about. God has given us the faith. We have everything. God doesn't just say, well, I'm going to give you an eyedropper full of faith, and you I'm going to give a bucket of faith to, I'll give you a teaspoon of faith. No. He comes into us, he gives us all the faith we need. We have to learn to be able to use it, and this is what Peter is going to say. Learn to use the faith that we have. 
All right. Again, I'm going to go back to repelling. The first time I repelled, I was, I was scared to death to step over the edge of that cliff. I weighed 300 pounds, and this little tiny rope was not very thick. Now, I was assured that that rope could hold 600 pounds. Uh, but looking at that rope and looking at me and looking down 30 feet was uh, you know, not a very uh, hard thing, uh, easy thing to step over the edge. But that is what Jesus is asking us to do. Lean into him and all that goes on. When I meet a problem, when I meet a trial, our, our natural instincts, our flesh says, uh-uh, got to do this on my own. I, I'm, not, I'm not leaning into Jesus. This person's mean and nasty. I'm not loving them. I'm not being nice to them. I'm going to give them what they deserve. We lean into Jesus, and Jesus gives us the capacity to be able to be nice to them give us the capacity to love them. Now, we might not like them, but we are to love them and be kind to them. But in the flesh, if we didn't like them, we're going to be mean and nasty and, and tell, you know, give them what, what for and make sure they know that we don't like them. But when we love somebody, and you can love somebody through Jesus Christ and not like them. We can love them and not be their best friend. We can love them and not really desire to be in their presence. But when we are in their presence, we're going to be kind to them and love them and be, be you know, nice to them without being obnoxious. Don't be phony, but you're not going to be out there you know, being mean to them. That's the world's way of doing things. And it's hard sometimes for us to d distinguish between the two. You know, but if you're married long enough, there's times when you, you've chosen to be in love with somebody and you're in love with your spouse, but there's times when you may not like them. You know, they've gotten on your nerves and it's just hard to be nice to them. And we all go through those cycles. All friendships even do that. There's times when your friend might get on your nerves. You just want to be alone, and your friends just, they want to be with you that, that day when you want to be alone. And, you know, it's like, just leave me alone. <laughs> go, go away. I like you usually, but not today. Uh, so we're in that place, and this is what he's saying. We have received this equal faith among us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our faith comes from God. And the more I get to know him, the more I'm going to be able to touch into that faith. Faith comes by hearing. I get to trust God more. And then I trust him more. Why? I listen to him. I get to know God. And the more I get to know the heart of God, the more I can trust him. And it's the same thing even in the world. The more I know somebody, especially if they're a good person, <laughs> the more I'm going to know whether I can trust or not trust them. There are some people I know I wouldn't trust them at all because they have proved that they're untrustworthy. You know, I, I've given them chances and they didn't get it done. You give them a job and they don't get it done. You, you ask them to do something, they don't get it done. You know that if their lips are moving, they're lying. And there are people like that. that if their lips are moving, they're lying. Many of them are going to the politics. Uh, but, you know, we all know people like that. You know, if, if their lips are moving, they're, they're so full of Satan because it says Satan, when he speaks, speaks his native language, which is lies. And we all know that there are people out there that when they speak, they're lying. You know, and I'm not going to say 100% of the time, but no more, you, know, you just get so used to them that when they're speaking, uh, I can't believe anything they say, and you take everything they say with a whole, whole truckload of salt. <laughs> You know, oh, not sure I can believe anything you're saying, so I'm just going to back off. And then there's other people we know that they're so trustworthy, we're going to believe just about anything they say because they've proven themselves to be trustworthy. 
And we need to be very careful because this is what he says. Because of the righteousness of Christ that indwells in me, I can have faith. Because I know that he's the one protecting me. I know that he's the one keeping me. How do I get to know him? I get into the word. Whether it's by teaching others, reading it myself, listening to it on the tape, you know, whatever it is, I hear the word of God and I can get more trust in God, which is one of the benefits of testimonies. When we listen to the testimonies of other people that have been turned over to God, it's wonderful because you go, oh God, you're still faithful. Wow, God, you did that for them? You did that for them? And then we know God's word and we go, and you did that for Peter and Paul and Moses and Aaron and Caleb and, and Gideon, and you're still doing it today for all these people around me that I know? It builds our faith. We read the biographies that I encourage everybody to read and we go, God is still working. Even though most of the biographies are like 100 years ago, 200 years ago, God is still working, was still working. Just as he was 2,000 years ago, he's still working in the last 100 years, 200 years. And then we hear other people talk about what God has done in their life and go, wow, God, you're still working today. That builds our faith. We need to be able to share with one another what God is doing in our life so we build faith. And saying, well, see that person over there? Listen to their testimony. They, they were rotten, terrible, awful sinners in the gutter of alcohol and, and drugs and and sex, and look what God has done. He's delivered them completely, and look at the Christian that they're becoming. And we go, God, you still deliver. You still care. You're still working on people's lives. And it encourages us and makes us grow in our faith. And that's why it's important to have knowledge of the word, knowledge of the history of people, knowledge of what's going on in today's world, and saying, God, you still, you're still doing things. Our greatest testimony to people is our own testimony. Nobody cannot tell you that what happened to you did not happen. God delivered me of a temper when I got saved at 10 years old, and I had a mean temper. If I had not gotten saved, I'm absolutely convinced I would have been in prison for murder because that's how bad my temper was. And I was mean. Now, everybody looks at me, well, you couldn't have been that mean. Well, you didn't know me when I was 10 years old. <laughs> you only know the me that's been delivered from the temper, and I still have an edge of, edge of, edge of temper sometimes, but nothing like it used to be. But he delivered me from a vicious, angry temper. Now, other people say, well, God delivered me from alcohol and drugs and all these other things. And praise God. We all get delivered from something. And I'm a firm believer that if you become a new creation in Christ, God has delivered you from something. At least one thing in your life that he delivered you from supernaturally so that you can say, I'm a new creation in Christ. He has changed me and it gives us that thing to pull back on. When I'm struggling with something, I can go back and say, God, I know you're real because you, you delivered me from this and I know you can deliver me from this. And we look back on what he has done the big job from, the really big job from. Uh, Samuel's been listening to a lot of the unshackled stories that they, they play from the Pacific Garden missions and all these people having bad lives and they come to that point where they accept Christ and God changes them in some way. And each one of them is different. God's delivered them from pride, alcohol, drugs, you know, bad living, whatever it might be, and God delivers them, and at least one thing changes drastically, and then they grow from that point on. If you struggle, you feel like you're not a creation. Yeah, that could be very true. But the key to living for God is to not live in your feelings. We cannot live in our feelings. We live in truth. Uh, remember I've done in the past, I've shown that little engine, you know, a train engine with the coal car with the, with the caboose. The 
uh, engine is faith, what God says. The coal car is facts, what I know to be true. And then the last part is my feelings. We cannot put our feelings in front and try to drive the train. Feelings have to be answerable to our faith in God. What does God say? doesn't matter what I feel. And that's where, that's where Job was when he's laying there scratching himself with the clay pot because he's so sick and his wife says, why don't you curse God and die? And he looks at her and says, oh foolish woman, can we accept the blessings of God without accepting the, the hard times from God? You know, now I'm sure that Job's feelings were, yes, I sh should just curse God and get, get it over. I, sh I should just commit, commit suicide because you know, this is over. But his faith in God said, God's got a reason. And faith can get us through no matter what our feelings. And I'm not going to say feelings are wrong. But feeling, do not try to live your life by feelings. Many people get married in today's world on feelings. I feel like I'm in love. I've only known the person for three hours, and, but we are in love. You know, I like the way they look. I like the way they talk. I like the way they smell. I like the way they're behaving. And we're going to get married. And then they wonder why they're married and end up divorced you know, next week because they never got to know the person to find out, do I really love this person? Yeah, <laughs> but, but you understand what I'm saying. If we try to say, I, you know, God, when I'm in the middle of a trial and I'm saying all things work together for good, in the middle of the trial, I don't feel like all things are going to work together for good. And if I'm basing my life on my feelings, I'm going to bail out and try to find some way to get out of the problem on my own. Instead of saying, God, I don't understand this, but I am going to let you be in control and I'm holding on to your promise that all things work together for good. Now, he still may take us out of the problem, but it's not me saying, I've got to get out of this problem because this just you know, I just feel so bad. God cannot be allowing this to happen in my life. <coughs> and yet there's times when bad things are happening and God says, I have a reason for this. I have a reason for this. Just be patient for it. And my greatest example, and I use this a lot, not to make myself look good, but when God put me through six months of pain on gout, on crutches for six months, and I'm going, God, I don't understand this. The medicines aren't working, and I'm still serving you. I'm doing the best I can in as much pain. And then a year later, somebody says how encouraged they were because I served God in obvious pain. My goal in the past would have been to bail and get out of it. You know, God, I'm going to do something to get out of this pain because this is just not worth it, or I'm just going to stay home because it, I'm, too pain, I'm in too much pain to serve you. That would have been my flesh. And there were times when I'm going, God, I really don't want to get up and do this. I've got to walk around all the Sunday school classes because I'm the Sunday school you know, superintendent and I've got to check on all the classes all over the building, upstairs, downstairs, you know, walking, walking about a half mile to a mile by the time I'm done on crutches. And believe me, there were times that I woke up going, I don't want to do this. But I got up and did it. You know, why? Because God put it there and he had a reason for it. And believe me, at the end of the six months when I finally didn't have that pain, I still did not know at that time what the reason was. All right? And I'm not going to say you're ever, ever going to know the reason. In this one particular case, I did finally, you know, God revealed the reason, and I think he did it just so I could help people see that no matter what you go through, whether you understand it or not, God has a reason. You know, you have the, the story of, uh, oh man, what was his name? The man who had to go to the river and, you know, the foreign man general that had to go to the river and go, go bathe himself seven times. Huh? Okay. Uh, no, it wasn't. Anyway. Anyway, he was a general that went to Elisha to get healed of leprosy. 
And Elisha didn't even go out and meet him, you know, which made him mad in the first place. So the, you know, he thought he was really important, and Elisha didn't even come out to sit. He says, just go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. And the guy gets mad. He goes, we've got cleaner, better rivers in the, at home. Why should I go bathe in the Jordan? Because you were told to. <laughs> you know, went, went a couple times, didn't see any changes, didn't want to go in, was convinced, you know, finally going, goes in seven times in obedience and gets healed. How many times do we look at this and say, God, I don't understand any of this? You know, you've told me to do this five or six times. You know, six times. I've done it five times. Nothing is happening. And God says, well, I told you to do it six times, not five times. I told you to do it seven times, not six times. We need to just be willing to listen to God and stand with God and live by faith, not by our feelings. If we live by feelings, we're going to have a miserable life. If every time I feel bad and feel sick, I'm not going to do whatever God wants because I feel sick, then I can get stopped. When it comes to coming to church, I come to church. Period. Doesn't matter how I feel when I wake up. Unless I'm throwing up or going to the hospital, <laughs> and I mean literally throwing up. I mean, it's not something that they can even settle my stomach with, you know, Pepto-Bismol or something to settle my stomach. I'm coming to church. Why? Because God says to be here. It doesn't matter how I feel. Now, if I'm sneezing and coughing and making something that seems, and I've got the flu, and I know I've had the flu for several days before that, I'm probably not going to come to church. I don't want to give everybody the flu. But for the most part, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whenever else, all the other times we do it here, I'm coming to church. And some people, well, you're just so faithful. Well, it's just what I've learned from God. He says, forsake not the assembly of yourselves, and so much more as you see the day approaching. We need one another. I need to be with God's people. I need, even before being the pastor teaching it, I needed to be in church with God's people and being encouraged. And this is where faith comes in. I obey God's word. Even if I don't understand why he's saying to do it, I obey his word. And it's sometimes hard to do. And it may be very trying to do sometimes. <laughs> when God says, do something, you're going, God, I don't understand it. I don't know how this is going to be good. I don't... And God says, well, I didn't ask you to understand it. I just said, do it. That is what the servant does. I want you to go take care of this person. They, we, well, that person doesn't deserve it. I didn't ask you if they deserve to be taken care of. I told you to go do it. You know, the master has a reason for doing something. God has a reason for doing something. And he's not necessarily going to explain to his servant why. When I was a manager, most of the time I told my people why I wanted something to do. But if it was busy and I told them to do something, I didn't want them to come back to me and say, why? You know, there was a time that says, I told you to get it done, go get it done. I need it done, just do it. And maybe after rush, I'll tell you why, but right now, just do it. And that's what God says sometimes to us. Verse two, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he says, grace. The whole idea of grace is merciful kindness. How does grace get man, uh, multiplied to us? We get to know it. We get to know God and really see all the grace that he's giving us. And remember, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Okay? As opposed to mercy, which is not getting what we deserve. God says, my grace. I'm giving you the riches of heaven. I'm giving you forgiveness. I'm giving you the righteousness of Christ. I'm giving you all these things. How do we get to know all the things we've been given by grace? We spend time in the word of God and say, God, oh, wow, God, you, you made that promise? 
You made that promise? You're going to do what? And we get to know his word. And the more we get to know his word, and that's why it says through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. Where do I get my knowledge? Through the word of God. And the more I get to know his word, the more I get to understand the grace that he's given me. He's made us a child of God. He's adopted us into his family. He's, he's promised us that he's given us forgiveness for our sins. He's promised us that we are righteous. He's promised that we have heaven coming our way on our death, that we will not face death and that we will be absent from the body as to be present with the Lord. He's promised to be doing what's good for us, rather uh, uh, what's going to be good for us in the long run, when, especially when compared, when we look at heaven instead of this world. He looks at all the things he's given us and we get to know his grace by getting to know his word. And when we give, then he talks about the peace of God. And I've given you this definition so many times, but the, the definition for peace is the tranquil state of a soul assured of salvation through Christ and not fearing anything from God and being content with our earthly lot. It's a pretty powerful statement. Peace. I'm not worried about eternity. Why? I've got heaven. I know that I have heaven. I know that God is not going to bail out on me. What, that, that in and of itself is enough to give us great confidence. God, you're going to take me to heaven. Heaven is so wonderful I can't even con con conceive of it. And the picture you've given is so mind-blowingly you know, good. And, and that's even a minor thing compared to what it is. You've promised me that I'm righteous. You've promised, you've promised me that you're not going to reject me because I, am, because I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Right there is enough to keep you happy. And then we learn contentment. God, I am just content with whatever you give me. Not, not that we won't try to improve or anything, but I'm content. If, if all God gave me was food on my table and a, and a roof over my head, then I should be content. And God has given me so much more than the bare minimums. And one thing we really need to understand, God has promised to, to give us all of our needs. He promises to meet our needs. And he, then he just throws in some of our wants on top of that. And that's the wonderful thing. What do we need? Food and shelter. And some clothing. <laughs> what do we get? Well, I've got utilities. I've got good cars. I've got gas in my cars. I've got insurance. I've got a job bringing all this money in. I get to teach people. I get to have a family that is growing and, and following Christ, what, you know, he's starting to meet wants. And as long as we stay faithful, who knows where those wants will even go. He's not out there saying, well, how little can I bless my children with? He's a good father. He's not saying, well, I just want to get, I'm going to give just enough to keep them happy, but I'm not going to really bless them at all. I'm going to give them just enough food so that they stay alive and just enough shelter so that the rain doesn't fall on their heads. <laughs> he blesses us. And when those blessings can be so wonderful sometimes, when we just look and say, God, wow, look at all the stuff that you have given me. And I think sometimes, you know, especially when I listen to people and, you know, they talk about how they're missing everything they have, all these different things, you know, and all they look about is all the stuff they don't have. And I look around and say, well, God, I may not have a million dollars in the bank, but you know what? I've always got something in the bank. may not be a whole lot, but there's something in there. Maybe under $100 sometimes, but there's something there to fall back on. In my lifetime, we've always had utilities paid. 
always been able to get around whether we had a car or not. There was a bus system in most places, so we were able to get a bus. Here in, here in Arizona, we've always had a car because you can't get around without a car in this, town, in, this, in this county. So God has always met the needs that I have. And then some. Always. I've put my trust in him. We've given him our tithes and offerings, and he blesses. And he returns. So much more. And, you know, would I like to have more money? Of course I'd like to have more money, but I'd just give more money if I had more money because that's the way I have always been. God, you're going to get your percentage that he and I have agreed on. And we, he gets his percentage, which is well above 10%, but he gets his percentage. And hopefully someday I'll give more. But, you know, we sit there and say, God, I just want to live in your trust, in your grace, in your peace and help us to be content there are so many people that are never content they always want more they always want better god i want to have a better car i want to have a better house i want to have a better job i, I want 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 and they're always looking for the next thing and even those who are richer are oftentimes in that same point they just don't have enough you know they always have to have a better car a better house better servants better more money they're not any happier than the poor that want, you know, unless they have learned to be content with God where they're at. And that doesn't mean I try, don't try to get better or try to have a better job or anything. It just means, God, I'm content. And if you open the doors, I'll take it. When the door to the prison opened up, I, wasn't, I really didn't want to go. I was content being living by faith and living on very little money. And God kind of had to push me through the door. And I know that was him you know, desiring it, but he literally had to open the door and push very hard because I was overly content with where I was at. And if I hadn't gone through that door, I think God would have pulled back the blessings that I was living on at the time. I'd love to go back to living by the, the way I did. It was a lot of fun watching how God worked. You know, nerve-wracking at times. God, the, bill, the bill's due tomorrow. How, how, how's the money coming in? And yet he would, he would bring it in, always. And it was very hard work sometimes. It, in one sense, it's kind of nice knowing that my bills are paid by a paycheck coming in every two weeks. But I also know that even if a paycheck wasn't coming in, God would meet the needs. And that's where we need to be. My confidence is in him. My confidence is not in the job, the second job. It is not in that job at all. It's nice having it. makes a nice paycheck. and gives me opportunities to minister to people out, in the, out there in the prison. But if it was to disappear, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Because God is in charge and would meet the needs. All right, we're going to end there. I went by fast. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to seek you. Lord, we ask you, teach us to be more in your grace. Teach us to understand you in greater, deeper depths. Keep us in the word so that we can grow in your faith, grow in your grace, grow in your, in your peace. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.